Welcome to our final plenary session of the day. We have another fascinating session coming up. Uh, we are going to be looking at landscapes and forest restoration. I am delighted to be joined on the call uh, by Lucita Jasmine, who is Director of Sustainability and External Affairs at April. Uh, we have Nicola Tubbs, Director of International Programmes at WWF. Uh, we have uh, Jeremy Mannion, who is Director of Forestry Carbon Markets at Arbor Day Foundation. And we have Martin Huxtable, who is Sustainable Sourcing Director at Unilever. Lucita, let me turn to you first. Firstly, welcome. Thank you. Well, April, I know, has been doing ongoing work in uh, landscape restoration in Sumatra for some time. And in fact, my colleague Toby Webb posted uh, on LinkedIn and on his blog a uh, fascinating uh, report and his visit to uh, some of your facilities uh, a couple of years ago. So it's very much worth a look uh, to if we can re recommend that to everybody. So, uh, Lucita, please, um, can you go first here and case study uh, what you have been doing um, and outline the specific challenges around restoring a forest landscape? Lucy Adams. Sure. Um, thanks, Ian, and good evening, everyone from Jakarta, Indonesia. So I'm Lucita Jasmine, and the Sustainability Director of the April Group. We're one of the biggest manufacturers of fiber-based products, pulp and paper in the world, and our operations are based in the province of Riau in Indonesia. So I guess it's best to start with a quick overview because not, as, not everyone would be as familiar as Toby would be in terms of our peatland restoration projects. So, um, so we do have a, a peatland restoration initiative and it's called the Riau Ecosystem Restoration Program or RER. It covers about 150,000 hectares, which I believe is about the size of London. And it's on the Kampar Peninsula, province of Riau in Indonesia. So this peatland restoration area is actually on top of the high conservation value set asides that we have within our production concessions. And if you total that, we do have about 370,000 hectares of conservation and restoration um, areas that are under our active management and protection. Now, in particular, this peatland restoration area where um, there, this is a previously commercial timber logging concession mixed with illegal logging, which was of course prevalent in the early 2000s. And both activities left a legacy of about 48 draining canal systems that span more than 200 kilometers on the whole of the, of the area. But even with this history, this, is, this area is still one of the last uh, remaining intact peatland forests in Sumatra. So that is basically its uh, significance. Uh, we have been managing the area together with partners since 2013 on the back of ecosystem restoration licenses that have been issued by the Indonesian government. And these licenses are for 60 years. So this is really a long-term commitment on April's part. So um, Ian, you mentioned about yeah, you mentioned challenges, right? Um, so maybe I'll start with, um, well, We've been operating in Indonesia since, uh, to, since the early 90s, and we have seen how conservation and restoration evolved through time and what has worked and what hasn't. And basically our current approach to peatland restoration and also conservation in general is a result of the lessons learned and an evolution of what we have seen um, through the years, right? So one of the things that I think we can mention is of course, uh, operating in a developing economy we still face huge socioeconomic uh, pressures on forest resources. And what this means is basically is that any standing forest is subject to the risk of illegal conversion, encroachment, 
wildlife poaching and such. And we have experienced all in our peatland restoration areas and, and also in our conservation areas, right? So, and, and this is not, of course, to just uh, pass the blame or to criticize the local communities. It's, it's about, I guess, recognizing that there are economic realities that we also need to respond to on the part of the local communities as legitimate stakeholders on the landscape. But um, over the years, for example, I guess it's just as another example, we have seen a national park in Riyal get decimated from its original 80,000 hectare area to about 30,000 hectares or maybe less due to illegal agriculture. So enforcement on the ground remains weak. And therefore, if you're managing a conservation or a restoration area, there has got to be active management and patrol. And you've got to have sufficient operational resources on the ground to do that. So that's one, one key challenge. The second challenge is, of course, the lack of clarity or a single national reference on land tenure. So, and, and, and of course, you can have a single area where there would, could be multiple claims in terms of who's, who's supposed to have a legitimate claim on being able to use or access this particular resource. So this would result, of course, in several, uh, in some areas actually, again, being um, converted uh, or illegally converted to for agricultural purposes and, and going through years of, of resolution before anything could be done, whether this is to rehabilitate the area or to restore it to its, uh, to its original function. And, um, and I guess the other lesson that we've seen, which is a significant challenge for conservation and restoration initiative in the developing economy is a complete reliance on donor funding which in most cases is not for the long-term and, and would at some point come with certain conditions. I think it's been said that philanthropy is a doomed model for conservation because you need to have a recurrent cash flow. There has got to be certainty of long-term funding with any conservation and restoration initiative. So looking at all these lessons, then we have evolved a model that at least has worked for us and that we can demonstrate is effective in addressing heatland restoration. And we call this the production protection model. So basically what it means is that you integrate in, in, the, in the management, in the planning of the landscape, we are able to integrate economic and conservation values and having a balance of both. And the way we've operation, operationalized this is basically uh, one, our production areas or our plantations, physically serve as protective rings around the, the restoration and the conservation areas. That's one. Two, the conservation set-asides that we have within our plantations actually serve as connectivities to the core forests. And then three, in our, on our peatland restoration initiative alone, RER, we spend between $4 million and $6 million a year. And basically, the, you know, the, the, this funding comes from the production revenues. Because we, we see production and conservation enabling each other. We don't see it as, as actually being on opposite ends of the spectrum, but being on the same side of, of the equation. They enable each other in a sense. So, and to build in or to ensure even, so, well, I guess even firmer certainty on, on, on funding over the long term, um, we built conservation, into, conservation funding into our business model. Last year, as part of our April 2030 commitment, we committed, 
we committed to invest a dollar for every ton of plantation fiber that is supplied to our mill. And it's, it's almost akin to actually imposing or adopting a conservation tariff system. Um, when, where you produce from the land, then you must also invest back in the land in terms of conservation, right? So, and basically what this uh, assures us of is at least $10 million a year, which we can invest in conservation within our own concessions and also in partnerships with others. So maybe I'll stop with those, Ian, and then we can look into uh, to the views of our other panelists and, and, and contribute a few more inputs later on. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed. It's really interesting that, that um, you came to the conclusion that you had to develop almost a, a market-driven model. The fact that you're you know, your um, your production protection model was one, it's, it had to be a market-driven model, it had to be one that was self-funding, um, otherwise it wasn't going to work. Um, let's come back to that perhaps uh, a little bit later on, um, but thank you very much indeed. Uh, Martin from Unilever, thank you for your uh, heroic efforts to be coming back to the call. You were, I saw you were going, you, you did drop out a couple of times, but thanks very much indeed. I, I hope um, we have a stable connection now. Um, so Martin, um, from your perspective, how, um, so the challenges that, um, that Lucita outlined, how do they reflect on, on your work in, in, um, in Malaysia? Um, and what are the drivers for you at Unilever around forest restoration? Thanks, Ian. And, and yes, I, I do hope the connection is, uh, lasts. Uh, just give me a signal if, if, you're, if I'm not coming across clearly. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, first of all, I would say Importantly for us, um, while I really appreciate the topic of restoration, I would say simply keeping the trees in the, in the ground is really super important. Uh, fully agree with this concept of um, restoration not being just about planting trees and being inclusive of a holistic uh, approach to ecological functionality and, and also empowering people and communities. In respect of the drivers at Unilever, so we, we've set a pathway for ourselves to make sustainable living commonplace. And that includes actions to improve the health of the planet and contribute to a fairer and more inclusive world. Um, and specifically on this subject, we've, we've also committed to protecting and restoring 1.5 million hectares of uh, forest land and oceans by, by 2030. So we, we, have the, we have the platform and the mandate, and like everyone else, we need to learn and learn quite fast. Um, unfortunately, we've been working for several years across jurisdictional landscape programs, and we're up and running, in fact, in five of these uh, landscape, jurisdictional landscape programs across Southeast Asia. Um, and I think the benefits we've seen of these models has really been firstly in the multi-stakeholder partnership approach that we take to them. Um, secondly, that they're, they're an attempt to drive a system change with a real holistic focus on protecting and restoring ecosystems, fostering responsible and inclusive production systems, and, and of course the inclusion, as I say, and I said previously on the inclusion and empowerment of local people and, uh, and communities. We um, at Unilever, we, we do need to be guided by the, the emerging science in this respect in order for our programs and what we do and what we invest in uh, to be focused around delivering credible impacts. And, and we, also, you know, we also really think that uh, technology is going to play a critical role in the future in driving results um, at a cost-effective scale. So, yeah, you'll see a thematic of that for us in that all of our programs try to follow as much of a holistic approach as possible, where we're supporting or direct, we're supported, supported by or directly supporting local government, 
Um, and we our projects and programs are conducted in co collaboration with other private sector actors, civil society and, uh, and, uh, and communities. And that these efforts are really uh, complemented by interventions that focus on improving livelihoods. Um, and we include in, in those livelihoods smallholders and the empowerment of smallholders and the engagement of indigenous communities. So it's these types of approaches that are holistic and comprehensive in nature that so far we feel are the best ways to generate scale in order to find some of these enduring challenges that we, we face and, and deliver the system change uh, that we want for the longer term. Um, and as I say, we, we're learning and we need to continue to, to learn by doing. And, and in doing, I, I mean some of the programs that we're involved in, like, for instance, in Sabah in Malaysia with, with in fact, WWF as our partner in that program where we are implementing a program that combines, like also Lucita was mentioning, uh, conservation and sustainable development um, and integrating uh, protection and restoration of forests, wildlife corridors and rivers with, uh, with sustainable production systems. And in this case, the sustainable production of palm oil. Um, so it's in this kind of collaboration environment that we look to protect forested cons uh, conservation areas. We look at uh, restoring ecological corridors between forest reserves, which are critical for the connectivity of, of those ecosystems, uh, basically. And, and those connectivity, that connection and connectivity also allows for um, a larger scale impact and the migration of, uh, you know, interbreeding plants and, and wildlife in that respect. So example, uh, for instance, elephants and the, the fact that elephants need to move in between landscapes um, and that they need to coexist, uh, we need, we need to manage coexistence between elephants and humans, manage the, the potential damage that elephants can do to crops and also the association between uh, the, the, the obvious impacts of association and close association between human and elephant activity, basically. And that this program will also look at um, two riparian uh, reserves uh, for, for restoration in the in the uh, particular the Sugut and Kinabatangan regions. Um, and in that way, we're also we're having an impact on both land and uh, and quality and, and water quality, basically. So and as I said, it's not just about protection and restoration. It's also about responsible and sustainable production systems. So that will include 200 to 300 palm oil outgrowers, which will be part of that uh, system change that we're trying to drive. And it's also embedded in the broader WWF uh, Saba landscape program, which is, is looking to support uh, the sustainable certification of 70,000 hectares of palm plantations. So yeah, in short, in summary, I would say it's important for us to be guided by the science in, in respect of the impact restoration and uh, has uh, to not only focus on restoration per se, but also more holistically on the protection of landscapes, the responsible and sustainable production systems we want to set up, and really importantly, including and empowering the most critical stewards of the land in that respect, being uh, what we feel are the smallholders and indigenous people uh, that are involved. And obviously doing this, it has to be enabled by partnerships, um, collaborations with government, with other stakeholders on the ground. Um, and really, I think, yeah, what we're learning and what we're trying to build from this is, is a really a scalable approach, uh, basically, to have impact at scale. Yeah. Thanks, Martin. And uh, your internet seemed to work absolutely perfectly. So thanks very much indeed. Um, I'll come back to Martin in a sec.
Um, just a rem reminder to our audience, please do be putting in the chat function any questions you have, any points you want to put to our panel, um, and we'll come to them a little bit later on. But please be putting them in there. Uh, as we've said already in over the last couple of days, um, quite often the, or very often, the, the absolute brilliant questions come in at three minutes to go. So please, let's not have that. Let's have the brilliant questions now so that we can have time to unpick them and discuss them properly. So please do be putting your questions into the chat, and I will bring bring them in a little bit later into our discussion. So, Martin, um, very interesting your point around, uh, and it echoed what we heard from Lucita around restoration necessarily being involved within a production area and that's a kind of so if you're like that's a new approach so how would you um characterize how the conversations on that have developed we seem to have gone from a sort of zero it you know 100 percent must be complete restoration but actually now accepting it within a production area is probably the way that it can happen in in practice is, is that how you would characterize the conversations journey yeah yeah i'd, I'd say um well uh, look, I think it's developing in, in different ways. There are there are conversations that we are having within about restoration and how it uh, happens within production systems, but also around production systems. Um, you know, not only within, uh, but but of course, you know, uh, from take if you take a footprint approach to things, um, and you understand the impact that business has on environment and society at large. Then you'll be looking at um, how how these uh, things need to be targeted at within production systems and and also around production systems. Um, yeah. Great. Well, thanks very much indeed. I think it's another area we can come back and perhaps consider in a bit more detail a little bit a little bit later on. So, uh, Martin, you mentioned that uh, partnership is very important. I know that you have been wishing with working with uh, WWF on a number of your a number of your um, a number of your uh, projects. So. Uh, Nicholas, let me turn to you. Um, what are for you the essential elements of good collaboration? I mean, WWF collaborates with lots of lots of other organisations, and how can stakeholders best work together for collective positive impact? Nicholas, great, thank you very much. Well, thank you for the invitation, and I uh, also look forward to the day where we can have these in person again. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm delighted to see that the tech is holding up for us. Um, so, in answer to your question, I think that what I would be, say that there are three sort of uh, key points I would like to make in answer to that question. We've sort of followed by three um, take-home messages. The first one is the fact that you need a really clear vision, objectives, targets, and values for your collaboration. What are we sort of trying to do? Why and who for? And particularly when you're talking about landscape restoration, is it what are you restoring from and what are you restoration for? These seem to be fairly fundamental questions where you'd be surprised that actually um, these are quite fundamental to, to start with and we easily sort of oversee that. Um, and then landscape or forest restoration does require bringing a wide ranging stakeholders together as it's illustrated here today. And as WWF, we obviously work across the board with a whole wide range of stakeholders. We're really putting local communities at the very core of, uh, of what we do. Um, and obviously the different stakeholders have their own expectations, their own agenda, and let's face it, more often than not, each have their own biases when it comes to landscape restoration. Um, and I recall, um, as an example, um, developing a partnership with a number of different stakeholders some years back. And we, the very first thing we did was actually to develop uh, a glossary, a brief dictionary, because we were finding that we were each using our own jargon and that we were not really understanding each other. So actually that was the very first step just to make sure that we were all on the same page. 
that was my sort of first point. The second point I wanted to make is around transparency and accountability. Um, landscape restoration, forest restoration is time consuming and it's complex. And we face a real paradox, particularly for an organization like WWF, where um, good collaboration for landscape restoration, uh, stakeholder engagement can't be rushed. Um, and at the same time, we have no time to spare. So there's a sense of urgency, which is unprecedented, but this restoration work takes time. Um, but I think that one of the key answers to that is putting this emphasis on transparency and accountability, and that's absolutely critical. And you need to evidence your results one step at a time. And evidencing results means the good, but also the bad. And I think that it's very often the case that we forget to evidence, communicate the bad. We can put our utmost, have our utmost efforts and resources thrown at something, but it doesn't exclude the fact that we can also fail. And failure is also a result. Um, and we need to live up to that and be accountable to that. Um, at the same time, we need to be quite nimble. So these collaborations really need to be adaptable to a very fast evolving context. Um, I just came back from Ecuador a, a few days ago where I was quite struck by the balsa exploitation of wood. So because of COVID, uh, communities went to uh, harvest a lot of balsa wood, which is then exported to make the um, panels or the sort of um, blades for wind turbines. And that happened at a huge scale. And they were pushed to that because of COVID and because of the economic repercussions that COVID was having on their livelihoods, and they had to turn to balsa exploitation. Um, back two years ago, um, it, uh, the price of one tree was about $15. Right now, um, as I was there with those communities, just seeing a shipload um, or a lorry load leaving uh, the area, that same tree was now worth between $1 and $5. So just to say that that context has been very fast evolving, and again, communities being at the very core of it all. My third point is around scale, uh, and Martin touched upon it. Um, and I think that we need to be very clear about these collaborations and that there's a clear value added to this collaboration. Um, and this needs to evidence greater impact by the fact of simply working together rather than working individually. And there are numerous initiatives doing great work, but too often we tend to be restricted, constrained to a fairly limited scale. And we need to break that glass ceiling by delivering results for all stakeholders involved and not for a select few um, and look at landscape restoration efforts to be viable for the long term. I think Lucita touched on that as well. And by, because by viability, I, want, I mean, one needs to think of it in economic, social and environmental terms. Um, so in conclusion, my sort of take home messages are the first one is the need and the urgency for landscape restoration is a cornerstone to our conservation efforts uh, as WWF, but across our sector. And these need to be broad, uh, whether it be for forests, species, or for coexistence purposes. A second take home message is the need to stress the importance and the need for multi sectoral, multi scaled uh, type of approaches. Um, and lastly, I would say that my uh, the need to, for us to acknowledge the complexity and the breadth of what a landscape what landscape restoration requires for it to be delivered effectively, transparently, and to evidence that impact, that accountability. 
um, for us uh, to uh, for all of those factors to be included. So my final words will just be that it's so much more than simply planting trees, as Martin put it. Thank you. Thank you very, thank you very much indeed, uh, Nicholas. I, I did like your point, and in fact, um, uh, Sophie Percy from Land School picked it up as well around you know the fact that you've got to be transparent about what's worked and what hasn't worked. Um, how do you uh, have those conversations when you're involved in projects? I mean, it's it's hard to get people uh, to you know to to own up to things when they haven't worked. It, you know, it's it's very easy to only want to talk about the good. So, how do you? What's the kind of what are the persuaders that work when you want to talk about, um, or you need to talk about what's worked and what hasn't worked? Um, certainly, so there are a number of tools out there, and one of them is um, the Global Scorecard that WWF has um, developed when it comes to um, palm oil, the palm oil scorecard. Um, and that ensures a certain level of transparency and accountability for all those involved. Um, and the latest results from the 2021 um, scorecard uh, involved 227 companies, um, but sadly, um, they, the average score was about 13 out of 24 being the, the maximum score, which underlines how much more work remains to be done to align sort of best practices, um, which are all outlined in this uh, accountability framework. But I think that you've got these scorecards, you've got a number of different tools, and we just need to encourage people to keep buying into it, committing to it, and reporting against it. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Nicholas. Um, Jeremy, uh, let me turn to you. Uh, thank you for your patience. Um, I wondered if you can um, elaborate a little bit on a point that um, you made when we had a, a preparation call uh, a few days ago, um, and then leads on from the point we've heard already from, from, from Martin and Nicholas, and how Tree planting was the catalyst for so much of the work in this area, but it's all about much more than tree planting now. So perhaps you could elaborate a little bit on that. That And also, I know you work in North, North America, so contrasting what we've heard about Southeast Asia with your work in North America and elsewhere would be great. But uh, yes, over to you, Jeremy. Yeah, thanks, Ian, and thanks for joining us today, everyone. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, I think why trees are attractive people because trees give people hope. They unify people. They bring people together across these, you know, social, economic, and, and political divides that we've kind of created in our world. And so at the foundation, our, our mission is to inspire people to plant, nurture, and celebrate trees. And it's really our vision to accelerate reforestation by investing in people and partnerships. Like we've heard about on this call, you know, trees don't necessarily take care of themselves and it's humans interacting with ecosystems that are causing um, you know, conflicts and, and the degradation of, of landscapes around the world as we try to produce the different resources that we need. And so we've had the privilege of being able to, to work in all 50 states in the US and 50 countries around the world. In particular, like Martin was talking about, we focus really with smaller landowners and indigenous communities. Um, and it's really not so much about you know, just planting a tree to plant a tree. It's about what the trees do over time. It's about carbon sequestration, air quality improvements, water quality improvements, habitat, food security, improved health outcomes for people. And so it's really, um, you know, the world's forest will only be protected and restored uh, if people can improve their livelihoods from not only planting, but then growing trees and protecting these landscapes and seeing that like we need to protect intact landscapes, improve working lands and restore a vast amount of the graylands world, that holistic framework 
um, all integrated together is what's going to allow us to, I think, have, have a, a, you know, a, an accomplishment to be able to reach the goals that we're all kind of achieving for 2030 and beyond. And so when it comes to what we do is we really enable farmers to benefit from growing trees and then connecting them to uh, carbon removal finance coming from, you know, large corporations like Microsoft and others right now. So that kind of helps to catalyze a lot of this. But, you know, with a quarter of the world's emissions coming from forestry and land use, um, you know, that's really a massive opportunity to, to improve supply chains. And when it comes to smallholders, there's about 500 million of those around the world. It's about a sixth of the global population. Um, and most of those folks live in the tropics around the world. So there's, there's, the, there's an increase in brands wanting to make investments. There's a large amount of landholders that that need to, you know, have ways of creating income and addressing poverty through channeling investment to the right resources and, and partners. And I think that the challenge continues to, to realize how do we kind of do these activities concurrently? How do we grow food and have, have habitat? Uh, so uh, agricultural practices alongside forests and having incentives to kind of promote that. Um, and it's challenging for smallholders because they're, that you have to aggregate them across wide landscapes um, and be able to verify those impacts of what might be happening on thousands of, let's say, 10 acre, 10 hectare uh, farms. And so historically, you've needed a lot of, of, of consultants and systems to build those capacities. And so now um, we're at this point where in, in Nicaragua, we've been working on the ground with over 2000 farming families for the last 10 years, where over 10 million trees have been planted, um, not only again to address carbon sequestration, but to address poverty um, and also, I think working with those farmers to understand what works for their landscape. So farmers in lower lying elevations, um, how do we kind of combine trees with grazing animals, uh, farmers in higher elevations combining, you know, trees and high value commodities like shade grown coffee, where we're growing coffee under the canopy of forests. Um, and then I think what we're ultimately trying to do initially is stimulate um, payments to the farmers. About 60% of all the revenues from the carbon finance goes to the farmers in that first decade to help them start changing their practices. And then as we reinvest those dollars and build capacity for the farmers, it's really about setting up diversified layers of income streams to help keep those trees and those ecosystems, ecosystem services permanent over time. And so as we kind of rely on carbon finance, we're also layering in the high value commodities for shade grown coffee, other high value wood products. Um, and to be able to kind of transparently trace all that um, with different types of remote sensing platforms um, that allow us to see um, what's happening um, from, from a forest cover gain standpoint, how money flows are going to, to farmers um, and ultimately, um, how we're able to, to help kind of bring more traceability, not only to the carbon credits, but also to the other commodities coming from the lands when it comes to coffee, cocoa, um, and other types of cattle commodities. Um, and then we need to still be able to ground truth this with the farmers. And so they still help us kind of fill gaps from what we can't see from remote sensing or artificial satellite intelligence platforms through ground truthing with pictures, um, and on, on, ongoing, uh, kind of collaborations with our local government NGO partners. And so I think ultimately what we're, what we're trying to do here is, is, you know, give farmers simple, affordable ways to large, large scale reforestation and help them get paid through the financing coming from, from, from brands to help kind of more or less support these shift system shifts. Um, and so, and, and I think internationally, you know, I think it, it's really 
about getting market access to these commodities, um, making sure a majority of the monies flow to landholders, um, and then be able to kind of show the transparency of verifying on these impacts. And it's not all that different than what we're doing in, in, in developed countries like, like the US or Canada, except maybe it's other, you know, still working with small farmers, but I think we're leveraging a variety of other different programs to get these layers of value. So. Uh, for example, um, the United States Department of Agriculture has programs to help farmers, you know, convert degraded lands um, back to, you know, conservation by, by helping to finance some of the, the early parts of the financing when it comes to the tree planting. Um, we're also then having to work with farmers to then layer in other income streams, maybe less so around coffee and cattle, but more so around recreational programs for hunting and fishing, and then also layering in tax incentives and finding different ways for both landholders and companies to receive those benefits because the work of forest restoration is very expensive, which is all the more reason why we need to protect what, what landscapes we have left. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll stop and we can kind of dive on to some questions. Thanks very much indeed. It strikes me that we're hearing from across our panel um, instances of this changing the funding model and changing the relationships between the people that live in the forests and, and the forests. I mean, the uh, Jeremy, what you described in Nicaragua, it sounds very much like um, uh, we were talking earlier about um, Red Plus projects. Is that project in Nicaragua actually, is, is that a Red Plus project? It sounds very much like one. It's actually an afforestation, reforestation, uh, agroforestry um, project. And the primary reason why we're losing uh, tr trees and forests in Nicaragua is because of cattle. Um, and, and there's been this kind of cultural precedent that, oh, you got to clear the land to then go graze cattle. I think what we're what we're showing is, you know, yes, initially uh, that might have a, an economic boost for for a farmer, but over time, um, that degrades the the watershed, which then ultimately hurts the communities um, of, of their water security. And so, by showing that actually trees can, um, you know, grazing animals and trees can kind of coexist, not only for the benefit of of, of water health, but also the the, the improvement of, of the health of the animal and the value that that commodity can, can bring to the market and just kind of being able to shift cultural precedents to show that like these things can happen concurrently in landscapes, uh, agriculture, forestry, energy production, um, all these things can kind of happen if there's integrated land use planning and coordination across different folks that are in the land use sector. Historically, we haven't done that type of integrated planning. And so it's kind of led to these kind of more or less tension points. And so I think um, we're trying to kind of shift that model um, and, and really look at like the core driver of why we're, why we're losing trees to begin with and seeing how do we have all tools to our access to be able to kind of start shifting that outcome and do effective partnerships and coordination. Sorry, just to back to my question, is it a Red Plus project? So I guess it's not. Yeah, sorry, I, I said at the beginning, afforestation, reforestation, right, agroforestry okay. project. Yeah. Understood. Thanks very much, Nita. Okay, and let me just instantly put that point to uh, back to Lucita, and I'll put it to Martin as well. It's just around the kind of, because you talked about, um, you know, the philanthropic, it's a hard one to get out, uh, model that you use. Um, I mean, are you looking at your work in conservation to access other sources of fund funding? I mean, the carbon markets, for example, is that sort of funding that you're thinking about? Um, it, it is a possibility, but as, as, as you can see Ian, in the conversations that we're having, whether in Nicaragua, Malaysia, or Indonesia, right? The, the whole point of the restoration is really most of them are now happening in production landscapes. So it's really recognizing the development imperative that, uh, especially in these developing economies that are still being 
uh, were, that are being exemplified in the discussion at this point, right? And, and, and second, of course, there was a big, there's a big point that's being made about the extent of the resources that restoration, real restoration work required. So basically it takes time, a lot of resources, it's complex, you know, it needs investments and, and, and it's, it's, it takes time, right? And, and because you have to deal with several stakeholders. So all these require significant investments. Carbon is a possibility. Our project, for example, RER, is a, is a registered carbon project under Vera. And there is an estimate of about 6.8 million tons of CO2 equivalent avoided emissions every year over a lifespan of 57 years. So that's more than 350 million tons of CO2 uh, E, uh, CO2 equivalent um, that, that can be avoided in the area, yes. But whether we're gonna use it to generate funding is secondary to the fact that we are actually able to show that we are able to avoid those emissions as a benefit, as an impact of the restoration initiative itself. And secondly, of course, it's also a contribution to the Indonesian government's uh, NDC. And, and that is something again, that is a benefit that can be demonstrated as part of the restoration project. Now, should indeed we go into carbon revenues coming out of these VCUs that uh, eventually will be issued to us, uh, we commit to actually invest them back into conservation. And this is also what we're gonna use to encourage communities to engage in conservation and restoration and maybe use them as payments for the ecosystem services that eventually we can measure out of the restoration initiatives that they will make, right? So, but again, these are opportunities available, but, the, but currently it's very much rooted or integrated in the business model as part of our production protection concept. Production pays for it because we believe if we're producing from the land, we have to invest back in the land. And then secondly, if there's any carbon benefit, then we'll also have to invest it back into conservation and restoration, preferably with local communities and other partners. No, thanks. Thanks so much indeed. Um, Martin, do you want to just very quickly, the sort of alternative sources of funding, carbon markets being an example, how much are you looking into that for the projects that you were, uh, you were discussing earlier? Um, I, I think in, uh, definitely we're looking at uh, the, you know, how do you, how do you, what are the innovative models uh, in order to value ecosystem services? And, uh, and to value um, also what and how farmers um, integrate themselves and operate in a regenerative manner, basically with their environments. So I think it's a, it's a really critical point for the future. When it comes to carbon markets, I mean, we're not so interested in it from the offsetting perspective at all. Um, we need to make real reductions in our own supply chain. Um, but having said that, of course, these innovative mechanisms to value carbon and to value ecosystem services is, a, we think, still a critical um, need uh, to, to drive and to drive protection and restoration of, of environments, basically. So do think it's, um, it's, it's critically important. We're definitely um, and have been uh, working in this sort of space uh, for quite some time. And I think it's also it's, it's going to be obviously critical to scale. Um, this is this is potentially not going to move as fast as it should without the right mechanisms to incentivize protection, without the right mechanisms to drive restoration. Um, and to do that, as I said, in a holistic way that includes farmers, includes inter indigenous communities. So I think, um, I think it's absolutely critical. I think 
we're at uh, what is quite encouraging is the amount of innovation that we're seeing in this space and all the different models and and, and approaches that different parties are are um, starting to to drive in in order to um, finance and uh, scale these types of projects. So it's quite heartening that everybody is. There's a lot of uh, people and really intelligent people out there really putting their minds to this uh, this, this uh, significant issue at the moment. So hopeful. Oh dear, uh, Martin, we've lost you. Um, okay, well we did very well, M Martin. We lost you very briefly there. You were just—I think you were just—you felt that you're coming to the kind of okay. the, the end of your your, your comments. Uh, but thank you. Um, very much indeed. Uh, Nicholas, you've raised your hand. You please come in. Then very, very briefly, I do want to go to questions from our audience. Nicholas. Yes, certainly. Just very briefly, just picking up what Martin said about the fact that um, restoration does not need to be a distraction from reducing our own emissions. So I think that very often one can think of restoration excluding and being a distraction from and think of offsetting. So I think it's important to make that distinction. So I just wanted to stress that. Thanks. Thanks so much indeed. Right, um, question we got from, from Lucita and, and from Martin um, around government. So what specifically can governments do to accelerate scaling of the models that your companies are developing? Lucita, what do you want from government? Sure, thanks. Um, and, and thanks, Nigel. So um, I think it's not really just about scaling a particular model, but really scaling restoration, right? Uh, in Indonesia, for example, and there are many opportunities here. One, our company, for example, is actively seeking more ecosystem restoration licenses or areas that we can help and support, restore and such, right? Whether this be in collaboration with government itself or with other conservation uh, NGOs or organizations that are already on the ground. So we do want to be part and be able to also share our resources and whatever lessons we've learned, including, uh, including failures, as Nicholas was saying, in our own ecosystem restoration initiatives. The second part is, of course, there are existing protected parks, national parks areas that the government needs to actively protect on the ground. And beyond that, manage, right? Actually have uh, either species conservation programs or, or long-term strategic management plans uh, towards the improvement of the different functions of the ecosystem. But, um, and, and currently we know very well that they do not have the resources to do so. Within the Kampar Peninsula alone, where our RER Peter Rest Restoration Initiative is located, there are at least two or three uh, protected areas that if they want to partner with us, we could easily integrate into the management of the whole of the landscape and work with them on, on supporting that. The third is, of course, about leveraging our expertise. Now, an example of this is actually already being done by the Indonesian government, um, and it's, it's a form of a public-private uh, partnership. As, as you know, as a, as a plantation forestry company, we have the capability or, and the expertise to plant and to grow 200 million seedlings a year. So the Indonesian government, of course, has, has leveraged this by actually tapping uh, on our company to, uh, to construct a state-of-the-art nursery for restoration purposes. And it is actually, it's been constructed. So we donated our technical expertise and our funding to set it up. And this is not uh, a single species, but actually natural species for Indonesia's reforestation efforts. So leveraging that into more uh, PPPs. And finally, it's also about leveraging science because to Jeremy's point and to everyone's point, this restoration is not just about 
planting trees. You know, in, in our uh, peatland restoration initiative alone, it's peatland to begin with. So the first aspect is really about hydrological restoration and understanding the whole hydrological balance of the area and the risks to it and how do we maintain that. Of course, there's about understanding the biodiversity in the area. We conduct surveys every year on our biodiversities and we do this with our partner, Fauna and Flora International. You need to know and identify what you need to manage to begin with. Three, it's of course about uh, the partnerships that we have. We have a partnership with the Wildlife Conservation Society on improving our capabilities for protecting the species from illegal wildlife trade. We just rescued a tiger from a snare in our, on, on, in, in, in our ER and have reintroduced it back in December into the wild. So there is that, there, there is that potential uh, partnership as well. And finally, of course, on carbon. Right? So as you say, there's a whole decarbonization effort that's going on in our business, but at the same time, we do have what we consider to be a nature-based solution. And this is something that we can also contribute to Indonesia's climate goals. So in, in general, it's about, yes, looking into our model, but at the same time, much more about harnessing the resources and the lessons that we have so that we can also scale up restoration in general in this country. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Martin, same to you, um, same question. So what, what can the governments do to help your projects? Hope this works. Um, yeah, I think uh, when I when you say governments, for me, I immediately think of, of course, governments in the origins of, of where commodity suppliers, but I also think about uh, supply side governments and the partnership that needs to work between the two. Um, restoration, protection of environment uh, around the globe, it, it's, uh, it's not the responsibility of only one party, right? So the partnership space is so important to get right between governments and get that collaboration working uh you know towards equitable economic growth uh for everybody um and and the protection and restoration of these critical environments in doing that that's the first thing then secondly i think of course the uh providing the right degree of clarity and guidance for private sector to, to support on the ground efforts uh, for protection and restoration. Um, we as, as, at times and uh, some of our peer companies as well, are, we're not um, always embedded on the ground in these areas, right? So uh, giving us, helping us, giving us guidance and connections to, um, to the local uh, people and the local organizations that are so super critical in making this a success. I, you know, I think that the willingness is there. We're also learning as we go. So the guidance and the and providing that clarity uh, for the private sector to come in and, and help, um, I think is is really important. I think also the the you know as things develop and as things uh, are become clearer in respect of the science, which is so important in guiding us in respect of driving a credible impact. But as that starts to to uh, form. Um, you know, government's role in creating the right uh, clarity of the regulatory environment to participate and to help on the ground uh, where, where we really want to help and make a contribution that's, um, that's also in line with the priorities that are, um, are being designed and organized for that, uh, for that locality. I think it's really important that it is, is complementary and joined up in that respect. So I think yeah, it's it's um, in the end what we talk about, I guess, is all, it's all about partnerships and the clarity of making those partnerships work, um, the way of working between partners, 
And that's the same for the private sector as, as it is for the public sector and for private public partnerships, I think. So, yeah, it can really um, help us to scale um, and and help us also as the private sector to not work unilaterally, but also to work collaboratively um, in multi-stakeholder partnerships, which, which, of course, again, can't stress enough the importance in these programs for scale. Sure. Well, thanks very much indeed. Um, Nicholas, let me turn to you. question we've had in um, from, from Dean Current. Uh, you mentioned uh, scorecards for documenting success, successes and failures and learning from them, and that uh, standardised metrics would be important in this context, So, and be able to compare and learn from experiences across different uh, landscapes. So where are we at coming up with broadly accepted standards? A, a question that gets asked a lot. Um, I think it's work in progress is is a fair answer. I think there's this huge effort put into standardizing methodologies. Obviously, you know, when you look at the breadth of what you're trying to compare and draw comparisons and for those comparisons to be meaningful. Um, so there's a lot of work being put into that, including on things like connectivity that Martin touched upon. You know, what's connectivity actually mean? What are the metrics behind connectivity? And so there is ongoing talks um, with the Convention on Biological Diversity, uh, the CBD, about developing and standardizing those, uh, those metrics. Just like there has been linked to carbon, it's taken us a very long time to actually come with standardized ways of measuring, assessing, and reporting against carbon. Um, and just bouncing maybe on an additional point, thinking of that value chain, um, I think it's important to, to flag the EU deforestation law that came out just two weeks ago, um, which is obviously a huge milestone in itself, but it's fair to say that there's still some loopholes um, in that deforestation law. So it's a very good start, um, but there is a need to actually hold people accountable and that transparency all across the chain from the producing countries to uh, the ones responsible for imported deforestation. As I recall, the EU um, proposals are still that, they're still proposals, it's not yet been passed into law. Do you expect to see the eventual laws as strong as the, as the draft proposals seem to be, Nicholas? Um, your guess would be good as mine at, at this stage. Um, I think that definitely as WWF, we're sort of really keeping the pressure on um, and making sure that what is there will actually pass and that those loopholes are flagged communicated and accounted for as well. Great, thanks very much. Um, uh, Jeremy, question for you. Um, you talked about quite a lot of um, agroforestry agro commodity uh, projects, uh, such as your coffee examples. Um, our Monica asks, what are the direct incentives to farmers that have provided the greatest impact, enthusiasm, uh, and led to the right or the desired uh, results? At the end, so what are the in direct incentives of farmers that are that, that are most effective? Yeah, so most farmers that we find are, are very uh, open to wanting to you know have uh, new systems that help them keep these things in balance: ecosystem services, payments, um, being able to build capacity to uh, how to actually implement these systems over time. So. You know, a big part of, of, of the work that we do is, is providing that upfront financing to start transitioning these practices and then pay the farmers as we achieve results. And as we're sitting there helping them change the practices, we send out, you know, monitoring teams and our, our field technicians, you know, up to 17 times in that first year. And there's an ongoing schedule 
over the course of the project term, which can be 10 uh, up to 40 years in some cases. Um, so that, that's a big piece. And then as we start getting results, and as we start producing these higher value commodities like shade grown coffee, it's about then getting them access to market. And so in Nicaragua, we just actually went through the first uh, coffee harvest last year. Um, and I've been working with, with different, um, you know, coffee sourcing companies to, you know, help starting to kind of integrate these small batch um, coffees into, into their kind of rest of their offering and using and helping tell the stories of, of where these, you know, coffee beans are coming from, the impacts they're having to farmer stories and really providing um, the brand as a platform to tell a story about a single or a handful of farmers, let's say in Nicaragua. Um, and so we really help facilitate all, all that process and are a partner with the farmer to help them ultimately, um, you know, get, get paid to implement these, 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 new, these new practices. Thanks very much indeed. Um, conscious that we're coming towards the end of our time. I, I do want to ask the, um, ask the panel in a sec to come up with their uh, single thing that they're taking away from the conversations over the last hour or so that they want to, you know, they, they'll be taking away. If someone asks them in 10 minutes time, what is it you learned at this panel? What is that one thing that you're going to take away? But a final question just to follow up for, for, for Jeremy while everyone else is having a chance to think about that. Um, and Monica's followed up. So with, with your model as, do you, have you calculated the cost per tonne of carbon ultimately sequestered? Quite a, quite a technical question, but is that something you've done? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it depends on different ecosystems around the world, um, you know, based on those varying costs. So it's, it's definitely typically more cost effective to produce a reforestation carbon credit in, in developing countries than it is a developed country. And so, you know, for example, right now, to incentivize farmers to enroll in these programs, we're looking to hit around a $20 per metric ton price point. Um, to be able to produce that in a way where we can actually um, start changing the outcomes and get people, you know, on, on the ground paid and also cover the cost to produce these, these projects. Um, in the U.S., um, that's more like about $40 a ton. And again, th these, these are numbers that have historically been much higher than where prices have been trading. But if we want to get farmers to start enrolling into these programs at the scale we need to have a meaningful impact on the Paris Agreement targets, we ultimately have to, to pay for it. If it pays, it will, it'll, it will be permanent. Yeah, how the whole carbon markets and carbon pricing is going to evolve is going to be fascinating over the coming months and years. Okay, um, conscious of time, I do my final question now, and I know uh, uh, Jeremy will give you a little bit of time to think about it. Um, but final question to everyone is, you know, what are you taking away from from the conversation over the last hour? Uh, Martin, you first. No, thank you, Ian, and thanks to the the other panelists. I think the um, what I take away from this is, um, uh, you know, I'm more convinced by the the need for collaboration. And when you hear people talk, the um, the similarity of the problems that we face and that we're all trying to solve with different ways and different means and innovations, uh, the importance of partnerships in that space um, is is you know in terms of getting to scale and driving scale in what is a, a you know a very extremely long-term impact uh, programmatic approach that we'll all be uh, traveling and traversing towards. I think, um, yeah, very, very much convinced uh, that collaboration is, is, is super important in this space. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Nicholas, you're the key thing um, you're taking away from this. I guess uh, the fact that we represent all very different organizations, um, but actually we, there's very little we disagree on. 
Um, and as we're entering the decade for restoration uh, by the UN, now's the time where actually voices like ours really need to sort of stick together, hold together, speak with one voice and actually leverage that impact, that scale that we so desperately need. Because, you know, um, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but we can't keep postponing that impact, that scale, um, and that we need to deliver this in this decade for restoration. So, yeah, infused um, and optimistic uh, would be the key words uh, taken away from this session. So thank you. I think you were kind of saying that collaboration is important as well, weren't you? So that's the same thing that, uh, that Martin mm -hmm. said. So, uh, Lucida, uh, you turn to you now and you can't say collaboration, OK? Sure. So I'd say, OK, so a holistic approach is, is, is really fundamental. And by that, uh, I also mean you have to engage uh, with the socio-economic realities on the ground, right? It's not really just about the ecological part of it, but also understanding the socio-economic realities. A science-based approach is essential. You have to be able to assess, measure, manage, and eventually report uh, and be transparent about your progress as well. And finally, I think I've made a big point about sustained uh, financing. Um, you need to build in a model of investing in nature to, to support a long-term uh, restoration program, simply relying on tourists, maybe northern tourists taking photos with elephants and, and, and you know, well, simply not going to work. You need to have a sustained business model for restoration. Thank you very much indeed. Jeremy, to you, what's your thing you're taking away from the session? Yeah, so I, I think sometimes in, in conversations like this, um, it can the 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 what actually, how the work actually looks like on the ground can see it still be very abstract and academic and 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 not be really very tangible. And so I encourage everyone to go out and actually touch the land, go see a project, whether it's in your supply chain or outside your supply chain or even where you live, close to where you live. Um, when when we go out and we see the land and we touch touch land ourselves, plant a tree, you know, grow, grow a tomato, whatever it might be. And we actually talk to farmers and, and landholders. Um, we really see, um, you know, the, the impact this work can have, the, the, the things we all have in common. And ultimately, we're, when we're trying to shift this work over multiple decades, we need to have those connections with, with the people on the ground because we're going to have to potentially, you know, translate all of this continuity to, to future generations to ultimately deliver what we're negotiating right now. Um, and so that, that continuity over time to be able to have that physical connection to the land is going to be really important to make all this very real to people. Thanks very much indeed. And that actually gives a lovely, uh, lovely lead into the opening session tomorrow, which is where we will have four farmers in the session. We will have farmers from, from Malawi, from Kenya and from uh, Brazil. Uh, so that will be uh, so that you can talk to farmers in that session tomorrow morning. Um, very conscious we've come to the end of our session. It's been a fascinating discussion for the last hour. So my, my thanks to Lucita, to Nicholas, to Jeremy and to Martin. Really interesting conversations. And thanks very much everyone who put in uh, questions, some great questions as well. Mm -hmm.